We're on number five from the principles of Futuwa. Principles of Futuwa, uh, which we've called the Muslim Honor Code, which we've talked about before. So this is Futuwa. Number five is love for your friends, that which you love for yourself. Love for your friends, that which you love for yourself. It is narrated that a Suri met a nobleman and greeted him cold-heartedly. We went over this. Finish it? I think we started it, but we didn't finish it. Mashri, let's do it again. It is narrated there's benefit in repetition. People don't, uh, it's a side point, but there's benefit in repetition. Why is there benefit in repetition? Because the purpose of this, of these things as a whole, is that not that we necessarily learn something new but that whatever it is that we're trying to learn becomes part of us so because we want it to become part of us then repetition is actually important right? because we're not going to memorize these things unless we can hear them over and over again actually I was thinking about this this morning with uh, you know Alhamdulillah I was at um, Dara Ulum Crescent Academy Dara Ulum you know on Miramar and mashallah they have the Tabligh Jama'ah comes through right and I hadn't actually been around the tabligh in many, many years. It's been a lot of years since I saw the tabligh kind of in action. And I saw these, these young brothers were doing their weekend, you know, with tabligh. And uh, whatever, like I know people have, there's different criticisms and stuff, it's not the point. The point is actually, there's a very particular routine to how things are done. And it makes it so people memorize stuff, right? So there's like this idea that this person's going to do the khidmah, this person's going to do this, we're going to sit after this prayer, we do this, after this prayer we have this, and then there's like a, a the, all the, uh, actually all of the khatiras that I heard were the same khatira, <laughs> the same, the same six points of tabligh, you know, I was like, I think I got the, uh, the first is the kanima, the second is the salat, and the third is an uh, ilm and dhikr, and the fourth is ikram and muslimin, and the fifth is uh, ikhlas and niyyah, and the sixth is tabligh and da'wah. Like, mashallah, just because I went to two or three salat, I figured it out now, you know? Alhamdulillah, you got the principles. Like, there's a, there's a benefit to that, actually. And, uh, and you see it, you know, subhanAllah. Again, you know, uh, we might have different approaches. But you can see someone who does these things regularly, the benefit that they get in that. Because they do it regularly, they give their little talk, they have a rhythm to it, they have certain hadith that they use. Like, then the repetition, there's benefit in it for the person. So it is narrated that a surri met a noble man and greeted him cold-heartedly. Seeing this, the people told him with surprise, this person is a noble man. He said, I know, but I heard that the Prophet ﷺ said, if two Muslims meet each other, a hundred parts of mercy are shared between them. And 99 of them are reserved for the more cheerful of them. So I wanted the nobleman to get the most of the mercy. <laughs> I wanted the nobleman to get the most of the mercy. 
So uh, this is a funny story, but it's also, it's probably a true story about trying to um, <coughs> make that happen so that someone else benefits, right? Then he says, love for others what you love for yourself and do not love for others that what you do not love for yourself is a universal moral rule. We talked about that. Since the most precious blessings for a Muslim are ma'rifatullah and iman. This is the big, big point. What is the most precious blessing for a Muslim? Is ma'rifatullah and iman. Ma'rifatullah is the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So actually, all things considered, this is the most important thing. Everything else doesn't matter anything at all. Without it, everything else becomes things that don't really deserve to be big become big, and things that deserve to be big are not recognized as being big. Everything is in the wrong place. Life is miserable. Afterlife is even more miserable without ma'rifatullah subhanahu wa ta'ala, without knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's the reality. SubhanAllah. The default they say in English, right? That don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill, right? You make, take small things, turn them into really big things. What you see with the people of Allah over and over again is they take mountains and they turn them into molehills. <laughs> it's the opposite scenario. Now you see these people that huge things come to them and they manage to make them, they're still not that big because it's ma'rifatullah. And it's, it's this knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that opens this door. And iman. So the people of Fatuwa, they want all people to know Allah and to have the blessing of Iman. And they want people to be happy in this world and the hereafter. Our Prophet wasallam said, None among you truly believes until they love for their brother or their sister what they love for themselves. And we talked about that. So the person who truly believes in Allah is one who wants other people to be happy in this life, to worship Allah, and to go to paradise. And this is the way of Fatuwa. And we have to want this for other people. Wanting that for other people um, means that we're willing to think about it long enough and consider it long enough and control our own desires long enough to consider what would be the best thing for them. Okay, so one of the things that you often see in the realm of da'wah is people are very concerned with what it is they feel like they need to do. I need to deliver this message and I need to get this thing off my chest basically and I need to tell these people what's right, and I need to tell these people what's wrong, and it's actually all very selfish in the end. Right? It's all very selfish. But if it has to be, if it's proper da'wah, then it can't be selfish. It has, it has to be that I want this for this other person. If I want this for this other person, that means I'm willing to think about it a little bit. I'll give you a scenario that happened without giving away any details, inshallah. Recently there was a, a brother who came up and I, I was with one brother and then there's a brother who came up and started asking some questions, you know. And he was very politely and subtly, how should I say this? I had said something, he probably thought, not based on what I said, that I held other positions. And he was very subtly and politely trying to talk about the underlying issues that would contradict what he thought were my other positions. <laughs> this is a little bit complicated. I don't know if it made any sense to anyone. So it's like, say you talk about some things here, and then the person assumes because you talked about those that you believe in certain things here. So rather than talking about responding with things here, 
he took the things that are down here and started to talk to me about those things. It was very nice, actually. It was very polite, very subtle, very beautiful. MashaAllah. And we talked about it a little bit and so on. <coughs> and I was very, um, you know, I didn't really say much. And um, uh, tried to affirm whatever points the brother was making that I could affirm. And, and then the brother who was with me started to like differ with him a little bit more strongly. And, uh, and then afterwards when we left and we were talking and stuff and the brother was, you know, saying like, well, this and this. And I said, yeah, I know all that, you know, <laughs> it's true. All that is true. And, and I said, but the thing is that for me, I prefer in most cases that the first time I meet someone, I'm not arguing with them or correcting them about something. Like, e as long as we don't have to, you know, I don't prefer that that's my first interaction with them. Right? It's just, I don't prefer it that way. Because I don't think that that's like very nice and I don't think it's a good experience for the other person. They just meet you and you're arguing with them and like giving them a hard time and telling them that what they believe is wrong and so on and so forth and that they contradict the vast majority of Muslim scholarship. It's not very nice, you know, it's not going to make them feel good. So we have to think long enough about how someone else is going to feel. And that might mean that we don't say something, it might mean that we say something in particular ways, it might mean that we do things in other ways, whatever else it might be. But we want for Muslims and, Muslim, and, and non-Muslims that they can have some sort of ma'rifah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they can have some sort of knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they can experience the beauty of Iman, right? Because there's nothing like that. There's nothing like experiencing the beauty of Iman. There's a funny thing that Ibn Abi Jamrah, I might have said this before, Rahimahullah. Ibn Abi Jamrah was a great hadith scholar and a righteous person. And he has a uh, condensed uh, abridgment of Al Bukhari, Sahih Al Bukhari, and then he has a commentary on it. It's called Bahjat al Nufus. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And uh, on the hadith of Thalathatun man kunna fihi, dhaqa halawatun iman. The hadith of three things, if someone has them, they taste the sweetness of faith. And it says the Prophet ﷺ said this, right? That three things, if someone has them, they taste the sweetness of faith. That they love Allah and His Prophet more than anything else. And that they love someone else only for the sake of Allah. And that they hate to go back to disbelief after they've been saved from it, like they would hate to be thrown into the fire. Okay? This is three things, if they have it, they taste the sweetness of faith. And Ibn Abi Jamrah, he says in the commentary, he says there's a long common dispute between the scholars on this phrase that they taste the sweetness of Iman. He said, and the summary of the whole thing is, those who tasted it said that it's a real taste and you actually taste it. And the ones who didn't taste it, they said that it's metaphorical. <laughs> he said, that's the summary of the whole thing. SubhanAllah. <laughs> there's an interesting point in that. Which is that, who is he talking about right now? He's talking about great scholars and people of knowledge, right? It's important to remember that, that even someone can be very learned. Like, the, the knowledge of the religion is one thing, the experience of the religion is one thing. Someone can not have a whole lot of knowledge, but they experience a really deep and real relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And someone else could have a lot of knowledge, and they have a real relationship with Allah, but it's not maybe the same as someone else. And he's saying the scholars, they differed on this. Do you actually taste the sweetness of faith or not? His opinion, obviously, you can tell, was that you, there's an actual taste to it. Allahu Akbar. Number six, give priority to your friend's needs over yours. 
give priority to your friend's needs over yours. Fatuwa ethics are not based on reciprocity, but on altruism and sacrifice. This is also reflected in the way of friendship relationships uh, are formed among people. In his book, Ihya al-Medin, and more specifically in the chapter of friendship, Kitab al-Ulfa, Imam al-Ghazali states that there are three levels of friendship. Friendship based on selfishness, friendship based on reciprocity, and friendship based on altruism. We talked about this in the intro, if you recall. Uh, at its lowest level, friendship is based on selfishness. At this level, the person prioritizes his or her own needs over their friends. If one has limited resources, they use them to meet their own needs first, and then those of their friends. At a higher level, friendship is based on reciprocity. At this level, one gives equal importance to his needs and those of his friends. If one has limited resources, they would share them equally among their friends in order to do well. Uh, then he continues. One day, a man came to Abu Huraira and said, I would like to become your spiritual brother for the sake of Allah. Abu Huraira said, do you know what the right of brotherhood is? This is a pretty good translation actually. And it's an important thing that's often missed in a lot of the translations of these uh, topics, especially in the Ihya and stuff like that, it's very often missed. So what he, say, what he said actually is, I want to become your brother for the sake of Allah. Most of the time when we use this word in community, we don't realize that there's different levels of brotherhood. And uh, we talked about this actually in the art of community. Adab al-Suhba, we talked about this a lot. That there are certain rules in the book, we don't necessarily use them for everybody. We use them for specific kinds of brothers or sisters that we have. They get this rule. But not everybody's going to get that rule. Otherwise, you're going to end up in a lot of problems. So when he comes to Abu Huraira, he's telling him, like, I want to be this, what did he translate as? Spiritual brother for the sake of Allah. Like, we want to have this, uh, and this mu'akha, which is taking from the sunnah of the Prophet them when he came to Medina, right? He put this relation, this brotherhood relationship between certain families. <coughs> so Abu Huraira said, do you know what the right of brotherhood is? The man said, please inform me. Abu Huraira said, it is that you do not see yourself as deserving to use your possessions more than I do. The man said, I am sorry, I haven't reached this level yet. <laughs> Which is good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he understood who he was and he understood what it was. He said, actually, you know what? I'm not at that level. If that's, if that's what it is, what I'm asking, you know? Because a lot of times people, we don't realize that too. Like people talk about certain things, whatever, and then we're like, yeah, I want to do that. But are like, wait, I don't realize necessarily what it means to do that, you know? So he said, I want to be your brother for the sake of Allah, Abu Huraira. He said, do you know what that even means? Yeah, it's like <coughs> I always say that in the past The world has changed a lot in the last 10 years Up to 10 years ago this was largely still true And I think it's still true today But in the past they would say that you're not a student of knowledge Until your relatives pass away and you miss their janazah this was, You're not considered <laughs> You think you're a talib ilm, you're not talib ilm Until your relatives passed away and you miss the janazah because you can, like you travel, you leave home on limited resources to study. You're not just going to come back whenever you feel like it. And of course, in the past past, you wouldn't be able to know anyways. By the time you know that they passed away, you can't make it anyways. Right? Months have already passed. And uh, there's cases like this, subhanAllah. There was a, there's one I posted about, the, I forget which country, the, somewhere in Central Africa. There's a young brother, he heard about an Azhar, and so he set out on foot. He said, I'm going to walk from Central Africa and get to Egypt so I can study in Al-Azhar. Eventually he made it to like Sudan and there's a war, right? <laughs> people are like, you really shouldn't go, there's a war. He was like, I'm just going to go. <laughs> and people found out about it, his story spread, someone bought him a plane ticket, he went and 
he's in Azhar now, or he's at least in Egypt. I don't know if he's officially in Azhar yet, but he's in Egypt. Um, there's a brother that we studied with, Shafaqat, Shafaqat Ali. It's a beautiful name, by the way. Uh, so, uh, I think more common amongst the subcontinent, right? Anyone, does this Arab, Arabs use this name? I don't think so, right? Shafaqat Ali. Shafaqat Ali is a beautiful name. Uh, so, uh, his brother Shafaqat, he was studying with us. SubhanAllah, you know, a lot of people, they come to Egypt, they come to Egypt already scholars. So he came because they want to, they want to graduate from Azhar. So they come already as scholars and they, want, they go to Azhar along with the rest of us. I had two brothers were like that. We had one who was from Bangladesh, Sheikh Tana'Allah, Hafidhullah. Uh, he was already a scholar, you know. So all the students would study with him, he was our classmate. And the other one, Shafaqat. Shafaqat went to madrasas in his youth. He memorized Mukhtasar al-Quduri as a kid. Mukhtasar al-Quduri is like a most famous primer in the Hanafi school. It's very large, you know, very large. Like one of the shaykhs, his commentary on it, which is like a relatively simple commentary. It's about like 80 or 90 hours. He memorized the text <laughs> as a child, you know. So Shafaqat, he was, uh, he told us this happened to him, that his father passed away. And he didn't know. His family didn't tell him because they knew that he can't come back. He can only come when, like, at certain times. Enough money has been saved. You can come now, you know. He can't go every year like the Americans go back every year. It's not the same for everyone else, right? He's from Pakistan. So he, uh, a time came for him to go back and um, to visit. And when he reached the train station that they w the family would normally meet him at, his father wasn't there. So he, he told them, immediately he knew. He said, what happened to my father? They said, he passed away. So he said, then we went straight to the graveyard, we prayed for him, and we went home, you know? Then we came back. After a few months, and he comes back to Egypt to study more. So this is what they used to say. My wife, she missed the death and burial of two of her grandparents while we were in Egypt. SubhanAllah. Uh, so anyways, the point is, I have no idea why I'm making this point. Sometimes we don't realize what something is. There, there it is. Sometimes we don't realize what something is. Uh, like I want to do this thing. Okay, it's fine. Do it. You understand? And I feel like a lot of the discourse to men now is disingenuous in that way. A lot of this popular discourse because it's like, you should, you know, do this and do this and do this. None of it is about like how difficult it actually is to do that. It's all making it seem like things are easier than they actually are. Oh yeah, you just do this. Well, why is this person complaining? They can just get this side hustle and work a few hours and then they'll like make a little bit of extra money. And uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> that whatever. First of all, if they live in California, you never know when the gas changes, the prices are gonna change. <laughs> whatever extra money they're making in those five hours is gone. You know, it changes overnight. You're like, subhanAllah. Uh, anyways, it's harder than it sounds sometimes. So he told him, do you know what that is? He said, it's that you don't see that your possessions are more important, like you have more access to them than I do. He said, I'm not at that level. They say this in the Ihya, it's also, it's probably from the Ihya. They talk about how they would say that um, a person's not really your brother unless they can walk to your house, open the door, go to your fridge, take whatever they want, and then leave. And you're not there. And, and they don't need any permission, they don't, and you're happy that they did it, then they're your brother. Right? But if, if you didn't reach that level, then you didn't reach that level. At its highest level, friendship is based on altruism. At this level, one gives priority to his friend's needs. If one has limited resources, he would use them to meet his friend's needs first. As it has been prevalent among the prophets, saints, and righteous people, and can be seen in the following story. 
He said prophets, saints, and Sufis, just so you know. But sometimes I don't like to use the word because people have allergies. Uh, you don't want to provoke people's allergies. <laughs> even, even saints usually I don't use because it provokes people's allergies also, you know, uh, based on like the... Usually when you see the word saint, it's a reference to the awliya, to the awliya. Someone could say, oh, you could use a better translation, this and that. Maybe, but we, you know, we also don't have to automatically reject everything that's Catholicism just because we live in a Protestant country. You know, <laughs> I think people don't, people don't realize the, we live in a Protestant country. So we automatically reject everything Catholic. And we say, this is Islam and Islam isn't this way. But actually, we don't know what we're talking about. You know? Uh, who, who generally who is someone who's a saint is someone who miracles showed up widespread recognized miracles happened on that person's hands that's how they get declared to be a saint in, in Catholicism right? anyways yeah do people take it too far do, sure that's not the point but you know whatever you don't like the word don't use the word I, I, don't, I don't prefer English in the first place <laughs> you know, for Islam I don't prefer English in the first place I prefer Arabic it's more precise a lot of, and I've said this to you guys before sometimes when I'm trying to understand something and it's not making sense to me, I try to figure out how would we translate this into Arabic. Because even sometimes when we're talking about things in English in the Muslim community, we don't realize that this concept that we're using in English isn't really our concept. Some terminology we took from somewhere else or whatever. And when you can't translate it into Arabic, you realize, oh wait, there's an issue here. This isn't actually, this isn't actually how we would use it. You know? So don't use saints, use awliya. And know that if any person who believes in Allah and the last day and has any ounce of knowledge in their, in, in their mind, then any time they use the word Sufi, they mean someone who follows the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And if the person doesn't follow the Qur'an and the Sunnah, then they're not a Sufi. It's a definitional problem in the first place. But, uh, you know, again, if we want to talk about it more, we can talk about it more. But I feel that uh, American Muslims are very confused on these things. May Allah help us. Not just American Muslims, everyone actually uh, has been confused on this. Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anh, narrated that one day someone offered some meat to one of the Prophet's companions and the latter said, let me send it to my friend, for he needs it more than I do. When his friend received it, he said, let me send it to my friend, for he needs it more than I do. The meat kept circulating among seven friends until finally it came back to the very first person who received it. Okay? So everyone who was preferring someone else came back to them in the beginning. Attaining higher levels of friendship is a sign of spiritual and moral progress. A person who uses his resources to meet his friend's needs. First, is someone who has completely overcome selfishness and has broken the idol of the self or the ego. Such a person has an altruistic character and has internalized the virtue of ithar or altruistic morality. At the societal level, a society where such an understanding of morality and friendship is dominant is characterized by a culture of sharing and sacrifice rather than individualism and selfishness. The, this approach is the opposite of liberal capitalist morality, which is based on the autonomy of the individual and in which the interests of individuals are idolized. This is extremely important. Extremely important. Actually, it's so important, I'm just going to read it again. At the societal level, a society where such an understanding of morality and friendship is dominant is characterized by a culture of sharing and sacrifice rather than individualism and selfishness. This approach is the opposite of liberal capitalist morality, which is based on the autonomy of the individual and in which the interests of individuals are idolized. Okay. Again, sometimes it's like, you know, the famous, uh, it's a great little anecdote, famous story of the two fish. The fish swam out in the morning, 
One fish swam out in the morning and he met the second fish. The second fish, they greeted each other. And then the first fish said to the second fish, beautiful water today, right? And the second fish said, what in the world is water? <laughs> I lived in water, I live in the water. I don't, I don't know what this is, right? My, the point is, this is used in philosophy a lot. Like, when you live in something, you don't realize how much you're in the water. So uh, sometimes uh, that's why Dr. Jackson, when we talked to him before, Hafidhullah, about teaching Islam to younger people and stuff like that, his position was pretty, uh, I mean, he's brilliant, so he's able to make things more easy. But he was like, we have to talk to them about liberalism. We have to talk to them about scientism. We have to talk to them about the intellectual, the industrial revolution. And like basically the last 300 years of philosophical work in the West in a simple way so that they understand this is what's in the way of you believing. Like, you, you don't understand. All of these things are influencing everything that you do. Every TV show that you watch, every music that you listen to, every person that you see, every cultural trend, that it's influencing all of these things. So that's the water that you live in, you don't realize it. The water that we live in, I'll give you an example that came up today. And it's an ongoing issue uh, in the majlis. It's an ongoing issue. People always say, why don't you charge for this? Why don't you charge for this? Why don't you charge for this? Why do you do this? You don't charge for it. So you should charge for this thing. It's gonna, we charge for a lot of things, alhamdulillah, more than I would actually like to. If you want to know my actual opinion is we shouldn't be charging for anything. And uh, that's, you know, it's just the way that it is. You answer to figure out for me how that happens. <laughs> but I don't think that we should be charging for anything, actually. And I think that a lot of Muslim communities ran like that. San Diego, for example, has run like that for a long time actually and that's one of I think the positive things of this community is that people are not accustomed to paying things here one of the negative side effects of it is that people don't actually understand the cost of things you know so people are like I've had students come to me in the school they're like we pay you know our parents they pay whatever they pay $700 a month or something for school and I, the first thing I always tell them is you understand that's not the cost of this right like no private school costs $700 a month that, that's not a thing you know I, I've, I've heard, I saw someone who ran a private school come to a private school whose tuition was like $1,700, $1,800 a month and blame the administration that their tuition is too low. He was like, your tuition's low for a private school, your tuition's low, actually, if you want to be like private school, you know. But like people don't understand what things cost because they're not used to paying for it. There's a good to that, there's a bad to that, you know. But... Um, So we've always had this tension in the majlis, what do we charge for, what do we not charge for, how much do we charge, so on and so forth. And people are always bothering me that we should be charging more. And I keep telling them no. <laughs> you know, even in the seminary, like if you look at the back end of the seminary right now, we've probably charged like maybe 50%. Like if you say, what's the tuition on all of these people that have registered? It's maybe like, it's probably two-fifths to two and two half in terms of the actual <laughs> amount that's coming. But alhamdulillah, it's, it's fine. You know, it's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Um, but anyways, the thing that happened, I once, someone was talking about this. And they were saying, you know, there's an event that's happening. Maybe they should have charged tickets for it. There's a lot of people coming, you know. 
And one of the elders in the family said, no, uh, don't worry about that. Because this way of doing things is the way that I remember from my parents. And even though like sometimes it was harder, sometimes it was easier, but the blessing of what they did, we're, we're benefiting from it now like one, two generations later. You know? We still benefit from this. And uh, I think this is the way. You know? This is the way that Islam spread too. How did, how did Islam spread? A large portion of Islam spreading in, in South Asia, how did it spread? Anyone know? Huh? Person to person, yes. Institutionally, what was the institution? Mm -hmm. It's a specific, yeah. Um, it's basically soup kitchens, langar. It's basically a public cafeteria. Anyone who wants to come and eat, they eat for free. And the Muslims had these all over the place. That's, they just ran it, you know. The sheikh's job was to run the cafe. That was the sheikh, you know. They run the cafeteria. Hundreds of people come and eat the food every single day. No questions are asked, you know. Rich, poor, not doesn't matter. Just everyone come and eat. Nobody. As long as you live in the area of one, is what's the idea? As long as you live in the area of our people, you're not going to go hungry. That's a beautiful concept, right? And you already know that most of the people that they were around were not Muslim, right? Yeah, I think you probably understand that. Like if we're talking about 200, 300 years ago, most of those people that were around the Muslims were not Muslims. But if you're around us, you're not going to go hungry, right? And then they would see what the benefit comes from that. Anyways, Allah help us. Allah help us. How is the situation nowadays? Unfortunately, our understanding and friendship does not even reach the lowest level that Imam Ghazali mentions. Today, people tend to use all available resources to meet their own needs and save the remaining resources for later. <laughs> for later use instead of sharing them with their friends. For example, friends nowadays rarely lend money to each other. Instead, they go and take a loan from the bank because the practice of Qard Hassan has been almost completely forgotten. It is therefore of utmost importance to revive the spirit of Futuwa and to put it into practice by maintaining strong friendship bonds based on sacrifice and altruism. You know, so actually if you were to really think about it, this whole loan situation, it's a strange situation. You know, there should be alternatives. I remember one time going to certain uh, communities in the Midwest, mostly Yemeni. And the brother who I was going there with, he told me something really interesting. He said, you know what these families and these communities, they do? He said, they don't go to the bank what they, for, for buying homes and stuff like that. They have a certain amount of money. A number of families will agree with each other. They have a certain amount of money. And they put in that money every month or whatever. And these are like working class, working class families, you know, like factory worker families. And they put in a little bit of money to the fund. Eventually, when it reaches a certain level, then one of the families buys a house cash. They buy it cash. Of course, they don't live in California. <laughs> it's a much different scenario here. But then they buy the house cash. Then everyone keeps putting it in. They buy the house cash. They buy Over the course of 20, 30 years, all of the families in the group, have, now they all have houses fully paid off. Right? And then they never use the bank. <laughs> it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but... <coughs> Sometimes, you know, like people, oftentimes in our community, it's not even, forget the bank. We think about like payday advance loans, right? Someone who's really tight on their budget 
and they need to pay their rent on the first of the month, and they're a couple hundred dollars short on the rent, they have no choice but to go to these, uh, uh, you know, uh, I want to make du'a against them. I think it's appropriate to make du'a against them. But these people who loan all this money with outrageous interest rates, and then they get stuck for basically their whole life. You know, what are you going to do after that? You've taken this loan on 50% interest rates, and whatever rates they have now. I think they made certain things illegal, but still they make them crazy high. And then you're stuck, right? For what? For a couple hundred dollars? Literally could have been paid two days later. Two days later it was going to be able to be paid. But you needed that couple hundred dollars today to pay the rent, right? It's a horrible thing. But, uh, you know, you're going to tell me the Muslims can't come up with an alternative to that? I believe that we can. I believe that our community has enough knowledge and enough wealth and enough intelligence and, and everything else to figure out some way to uh, find a solution to that. And uh, maybe it'll lose money from, from time to time. That's what Qad Hassan is, by the way. Qad Hassan is you, you give the loan and you have like a little bit of an intention of sadaqah. You know? you know that it might not come back. You know that it might not fully come back. You know that the time... You know, might not work the way that you want it to work, so on. So you know that when you give it. But this is part of how community of people work together. All right, number seven and last one. Actually, we can't really do that. We'll start number seven and then we'll stop. Inshallah. Oppose your nafs, give it its rights, and restrain its pleasures. It's a good sentence. Oppose your nafs. Your nafs is your base self, right? The, the, this voice, this inner capacity that we have that pushes us in different directions. Usually in the books of spirituality we're talking about the nafs as like in a bad sense. Like it's that inner voice that's trying to get us to do things that we shouldn't do or that it would be better if we didn't do or whatever. And we have to discipline it. You know, Man Busiri says That the nafs is like a baby. If you leave it alone It'll grow up loving to nurse. If you just let it nurse and let it nurse and let it nurse, the baby's going to love to nurse. And if you wean it, it will be weaned. <laughs> and then he says other beautiful things like, um, uh, basically, like don't think that if you're desiring something that's not good, don't think that by getting it, like giving yourself a little bit of it, you'll break that desire. Actually, it'll make you even more covetous of that thing. You know, he says all these second chapter in the Buddha is a masterpiece on spirituality actually, on uh, tarbiyah and tazkiyah. Uh, anyways, oppose the nafs, give it its rights and restrain its pleasures. One of the biggest obstacles that hinder one's moral and spiritual development is one's ego, which is called nafs in tasawwuf. I prefer tasawwuf over Sufism also. Uh, again, it's our word versus someone else's word. Uh, and there's actually a lot of reasons for that. Sufism, when they use it in the West, it's often kind of, uh, what's that word, um, polluted by the Western Academy. And there's like this push in academic studies to make Sufism something different than Islam. That even you hear people say like, there's Sunnis and there's Shias and there's Sufis. This is kalam completely fadig, complete nonsense speech. You know, That's that, uh, it's not a categorization. It doesn't work that way. Um, so you'll see that in Western Academy. So I don't like to, because I don't like to use Sufism actually, but use Tasawwuf. Tasawwuf in our tradition, now we understand it much better. What are we talking about? Also, it's a verbal noun. So it doesn't indicate being something, it indicates becoming something. Which is much more in line with how this concept is understood. 
that you're not just like, uh, like some of the shiuch will say, that uh, you'll never find someone who cares about tasawwuf and these things calling themselves a Sufi. Because if they were to call themselves that, then they've made a claim. They've claimed that they're like of a spiritual and clean state. But that's not the point. The point is to be on the path of trying to purify oneself. So the verbal noun is better than the uh, static noun. Anyways, whatever. And, and, and also, I don't actually agree with him here. <laughs> when he says development in one's own ego, which is called nafs in Sufism, it's not called nafs in Sufism. It's called nafs in Islam. Like that's, that's what we call it. The ego is your nafs. Yeah, the study of tasawwuf will give special emphasis to the development of the nafs, but that's not, it's not specific to that. Understand what I'm saying? Anyways, nafs is a force within us that calls us to pr pursue our hedonistic desires and pleasures. The human heart can love only one thing at the same time. A person loves either his nafs or his creator. Those who love their nafs spend their lives pursuing their hedonistic desires, and those who love Allah spend their lives seeking his pleasure. However, when we make a simple observation of the world and human beings, we see that people love many things such as possessions, glory, eating and drinking, and leadership. When we think a little deeper, we realize that people love what they love to fulfill their desires and satisfy their nafs. Therefore, the person who seemingly loves all of these things actually loves only one thing, which is their own self. It is only when the love of the self, the nafs, is overcome that the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emerges in the heart. This is a good paragraph, mashallah. Uh, the point here is that مَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لِرَجُلٍ مِنْ قَلْبَيْنِ فِي جَوْفِ That Allah did not make two hearts in the person's chest. Allah says in the Qur'an, He did not make two hearts in the person's chest. We have one heart. Uh, something interesting actually happened this week uh, when we were in class and the school and we were reading, um, we read this hundred line poem of the Chinese emperor praising the Prophet Wasallam. If you've never seen it, you should look it up. It's very interesting. He's a non-Muslim emperor, Chinese emperor. He wrote the poem praising the Prophet Wasallam. And it shows you that like SubhanAllah, his knowledge of the Prophet was deep. His knowledge of Islam, he, he knew what Islam was. And then I, I asked the students to write their own hundred line poems, you know, hundred word poems. And I was explaining to them, because, you know, kids, like, you know, they start doing something, they get distracted, they talk to someone else, all this kind of stuff that kids do. And I was telling them that art, it's not possible to do art while talking with your friends. Because if you want to do art, you have to be completely focused on what you, your heart has to be fully on what you're doing. And if you let it get distracted on other things, it'll break that, that focus. You won't be able to actually produce art. And you're trying to make a poem praising the Prophet them. It's a work of art. You have to be able to focus your heart. You know? And what, what he's saying here is that if we're distracted by everything else, we can't be focused on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is of course one of the tricks of the nafs. It's one of the tricks of shaitan too. They put all these ideas in our head. You sit down to do something useful, all these kind of ideas start coming in. This idea, that idea, all types of things. When you think about them, you realize that none of them actually, either it's not the time for them, or they're not really important, or it's not going to lead to anything beneficial, or it's just stupidity, or like is any number of things, it just all comes into our head to take us off. But the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is meant to keep us focused on the path that we're on, and to be connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because this is the reality of it, we can only do one or two things. One thing, you have to focus and do that thing. And, <coughs> and the focus is like, the way I think about focus actually is like, it's actually the attention of the heart. 
And when we're doing something, the more the attention of our heart is on that thing, the better off it is. Because that's where the true strength of the human being lies. Strength of the human being doesn't lie in like their brain or their body or these other things. You know? It lies in their, in their heart. And we know this actually. We know in a very like simple way we know this. We know when we sit with someone we love and they actually pay attention to us, how it's different. Right? It could be long, it could be short, but that moment when like you actually connect, you know, the idea that like you feel like I really connected with the person, it's because there was a focus in that situation that was different than it was some, somewhere else, right? So the hearts were able to not be distracted long enough to be able to actually connect. Uh, and this is a, a big challenge for us. It's a big challenge for us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us. Uh, but he says a lot about this. We'll talk about it next time, inshallah. Hadha wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from us and to forgive us. We ask Allah to make our lives and our, our hearts uh, attended to Him and attended to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We ask Allah to guide us in everything that we do and to protect us and our families and to give us good in this life and the next. اللهم إنا نسألك الهدى والتقى والعفاف والغناء ونستونا بسترك الجميل اللهم إنا نسألك العفو والعافية والمعافات الدائمة في الدين والدنيا والآخر ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار اللهم إنقذ قلوبنا لك ونبهنا من الغفلة عنك ونجعل آخر كلامنا لا إله إلا الله محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله عدد كمال الله وكمالين قبل كمالي سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون السلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين بارك الله فيكم uh, if there's any questions or comments, please feel free. But a slight note is that we won't be able to linger as long today uh, because we have a special program in Orange County and it starts earlier. So we have to leave earlier today than we usually do. Uh, we should be okay, but you know, sometimes, sometimes I don't finish at 11.30 and then we stay until like 1.15. So alhamdulillah, today I finish at 11.30 and if we stay for like half an hour, we should be okay, inshallah. But go ahead, yes. Yes. A poem, the Burda, the Burda of Imam al Busiri, uh, al Burda, the poem of the cloak or the mantle. I told the class this this week. I think it's fair to assume that the Burda is the most famous poem ever written in human history. I think it's fair to assume. Can anyone think of anything that might compete? I don't think anything competes. All of you know the Burda, you just don't know that you know it if you don't know it. Mawlaya salli wa sallam da'iman abadan ala habibika khayrun khalqi kullihim as the chorus. Most people know it. If not from their parents or their grandparents from Maher Zain. <laughs> and there's a reason why Maher Zain sang it, you know, like uh, it's the Burda. The Burda used to be written on the walls of the Masjid al-Nabawi, you know. Uh, the the Burda's, uh, so the second chapter of the Burda is on Tezkiyah. Uh, the first chapter is standard Arabic poetry. The first chapter is on love. You know, so you understand it in the context of love of the Prophet The First chapter is on love. Second chapter is on uh, spiritual development, and then the praise of the Prophet starts from the third chapter.
Yeah, that's right. You I had asked you to say. Um, the question is like with Futuwa, and these are matters of honor and character and stuff, but then there's Muslims, there's non-Muslims, is there a difference in the interaction or the, like, are there certain rights that are shared or not? Stuff like this basically, right? I think the easiest way to deal with this is just to, def to default to the understanding that they're shared for everyone. <laughs> there might be certain exceptions, like the way that we make dua for people who are non-Muslim when they pass away, how do we visit them if their relatives have passed away, when we visit them, what do we say? There's some subtleties in these kind of things. There's certain rights that a Muslim would have that a non-Muslim doesn't have, but that's like, if they sneeze and they say Alhamdulillah, you say Alhamdulillah, if they're sick, you visit them, but uh, I think largely speaking, most of these things are general. Um, and I think that we're safe if we default on the side to assume that they're shared. Um, that non-Muslims, and, and, and that also creates for us a personality and a psychology that is more consistent and better integrated um, that we don't have this like dual personality thing going on sometimes you see this with some of the people like mashallah they'll be really good when they deal with Muslims and some reason when they deal with non-Muslims they treat them like like they're animals you know and uh, human beings are not animals Allah honored human beings and uh, if we were to run on this understanding you know the world wouldn't be what it is today and uh, I don't think that our righteous predecessors made these distinctions so much. I would imagine if we were to like sit and really parse it, there's probably some things that are particular. But generally speaking, you know, we should try to be of elevated character as a general rule. Inshallah, people will see that. Yes. That's an excellent question, mashallah. <coughs> Questions basically around like, even in personal business, sometimes you might, there might be a regular rate and then there's a sliding scale rate and then there's a payment plan and then there's people who still don't meet that. And you're just kind of, you know, bismillah, that last portion. And how do we keep our hearts clean in that process, roughly? Yeah, anything to... You want to add anything? So this intention, so, so now, like today when I learned to have the public intention at the beginning, I guess you can like slap it on later on at the end. <laughs> you could, yeah. <laughs> you could slap the sadaqah sticker on afterwards. But, uh, but you can intend it from the beginning too. I think that <clears throat> part of this is that, subhanAllah, wow. 
think about on a bigger, I was just, uh, someone had posted this. this uh, apparently there's a term in the finance world called deadbeat. You guys know deadbeat? Deadbeat is the person who has a credit card and they pay it off every month. They don't like them, right? Because if you do that, then you, you benefit from everything that you benefit from the credit card and you get the rewards and you get the points and everything else and they don't make any extra money off you. Right? You're a problem to their business. <laughs> so just think about that for a second, right? The whole premise of our economic system that we live in is a premise where you're supposed to be extended beyond what you can do. Right? You take out these loans, you do all these things, and every, everyone's extended at least to the limit, if not past the limit of what they can actually afford. Okay? So this is a bigger point. It's, not, it's related, but not directly related. How do we escape from that is, I think, a good and important question. But if we look at the way of the Prophet Wasallam, one of the things that we see from him is that he lived extremely simply. As simple as he can possibly live, وسلم, he lived that way. And what that does is, it makes it so that now his capacity to give, there's going to be more space for it. Right? But if we live in ways that are pushed to the limits all the time, then our capacity to give is going to be different. So this is a broader philosophical point. Um, <coughs> relating to your question, I mean, I think that especially when we're doing business, we should know that there's going to be portions of our business that are a little bit questionable. And it's always the case for any number of reasons. Could be that we just didn't do something the way that we were supposed to. Maybe someone we hired didn't do something that they, the way that they were supposed to. Maybe there wasn't like full honesty in the thing. Maybe that's, there's a reason why zakat exists, right? Zakat exists to purify the wealth of those who have wealth. And uh, charity also purifies our wealth. So I think that if we're in business, we should just assume that our wealth needs some level of purification. And that those people who uh, while we run our business in a smart and intelligent way and we do everything that we're supposed to do and we also realize that there's certain people that are going to essentially rely on our generosity and we're also relying on their need in order to allow us to purify our money. So they're helping us and we're helping them, inshallah. And uh, we should make, you know, and, and we should know that when we do that, inshallah, Allah will bless our wealth. And I've met some people, mashallah, who are, they do business in a very exacting way and it's like everyone's always tired and I've met other people who do business in a very generous way uh, not outrageously generous but just generous you know they'll give things when they want to give things they'll let things slide when they can let things slide and so on and so forth and everyone's happier the people are happier they're happier their their wealth is blessed mashallah you know, so inshallah may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us too uh, but I think that should be a, a, a niya from the outset, you know. It's like when, in the seminary, in the seminary thing, for example, you know. It was like maybe we're letting too many people not pay, you know. And I was saying like, the whole re the whole point to do it is so that you can allow people who can't pay to be able to come. Like that's the whole point. <laughs> if, we're, if, we're, if the only way that we can do it is so that only people who can afford it can be part of it, then it's a problem. That's not actually uh, the way that things are supposed to run. And, uh, you know, so 
May Allah help us to, to figure this out. It's delicate. Yeah, it's delicate. And there will be times when uh, yeah, nothing is ever, like when we have a good intention, it's never that simple. You know? It's never as simple as like, I have this good intention and it's always going to be easy. Alhamdulillah, I have a good intention. You know? There's all, the intention will always be tested. And there will always be times when you're like, man, this person, like, <laughs> I really don't want to give to this person or this person, you know, whatever else it might be. And uh, subhanAllah. But the reality is, and we live in a city where this is like really, really clear. If we're able to be relatively stable and do what we need to do and relatively take care of our families and live like a decent life, we are really fortunate. And again, you know, we're in, a, we're in a city where it's like really clear. You know, you drive down the street almost anywhere and it's really clear. And, and there's no judgment in that. It's like, what's the dua of the Prophet And then when you see someone who's been like tested with something, Alhamdulillah, that Allah basically protected me from being tried with what they were tried with. And he's given me blessings that he hasn't given to many people. You know? It's a blessing in the end. You know? So may Allah help us to, uh, to figure out how to balance it, inshallah. SubhanAllah. Yes, Shana. Um, so I have a question about what you talked about with like, distractions. So it seems like it's more prevalent in our society than so I'm wondering, like, what, what was the word that, like, 